0: there, welcome to the Real World NP podcast. I'm Liz Rohr, family nurse practitioner, educator, and founder of Real World NP, an educational company for nurse practitioners in primary care. I'm on a mission to equip and guide new nurse practitioners so that they can feel confident, capable, and take the best care of their patients. If you're looking for clinical pearls and practice tips without the fluff, you're in the right place. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review so you won't miss an episode. Plus, you'll find links to all the episodes with extra goodies over at realworldnp.com podcast. So in this week's episode, I'm going to be talking about the diagnostic approach to diagnosing and managing hyponatremia using a case study. This is for adults in primary care and I know this can be a really mind-bending topic. I actually used to really hate lab interpretation as a new nurse practitioner and when I started Real World NP about two years ago, the first thing I did was do a deep dive into labs because I felt like even after about three and a half years of practice, I was still kind of like hacking my way through lab interpretation, and it still really stressed me out. So I actually ended up making an entire course about lab interpretation in primary care for adults called the Lab Interpretation Crash Course for Nurse Practitioners. So if you are struggling with lab interpretation, definitely, definitely check that out. It covers cbc cmp urinalysis tsh lipids and the top endocrine labs in primary care and it really like just putting that together from me myself like made me go from despising lab interpretation to like actually loving it like feeling so confident that i actually enjoy looking at labs now which is just such such a such a different place than i used to be so Anyway, in this week's episode, it's kind of like a sneak preview of the way that I talk about labs inside the crash course using a case study specifically for hyponatremia. So I'll be covering the diagnostic approach, those first steps to make, and then the kind of later steps for the more complex case situations. But I have to say for the vast majority of patients in primary care, you can get away with just the first couple of steps and then it will give you your more or less a clear diagnosis and next steps going forward. So, it can be a little bit of a mind bender, but I'll I'll walk you through it so hopefully you can feel a lot more confident understanding hyponatremia and where to go next for each of the next steps. So the patient I'm going to be talking about today is all the patient health information personal health information, PHI has been changed, so it's not his real name or details. So this patient is named Jim. Uh, He's 61 years old. He is a cis male patient. And when I saw him, he was there to reestablish care with a new PCP. I was a new grad at the time, and there was a physician that had left, and I had absorbed their panel of patients at the Federally Qualified Health Center that I was working at the time. And this patient hadn't been seen in about a year, I believe, if I remember correctly. But yeah, so the chief complaint was that, quote, I don't do what I'm supposed to do, (laughs) which I, you know, I appreciate that honesty. I appreciate the, the transparency there. He said that he does take his blood pressure medications. I'll talk about his PMH in a second. He does take blood pressure medications. He drinks a six pack of beer every day and smokes one pack a day approximately for the last 50 years. He drinks... Oh, a little bit less than eight ounces of water (laughs) per day, which is painful to just think about. Um, And also he said he's not interested in cutting down or um, quitting either his alcohol use or tobacco use. So what is his past medical history? He has a past medical history of hypertension, emphysema, alcohol use disorder, as well as a past remote history of diverticulosis, no instances of diverticulitis. He has no past surgical history or family history that he knows of. In terms of medications, he's just taking chlorothalidone, 50 milligrams a day. That's PO, oral. At the time of the visit, his blood pressure was 144 over 80, so slightly high. Heart rate of 100, also slightly high. Oxygen of 98%, which is normal. A BMI of 24, which is just within the expected range. And he was saying that he was going on a quote-unquote drinking weekend this weekend with his friends. So I'm going to stop there and talk about the plan. So in this episode, I'm specifically focusing on the hyponatremia aspect, but clearly each patient in front of you is a whole person that has holistic care necessary for their complete wellness, right? But I don't want this to be a super sprawling episode, so I'm really going to narrow in on hyponatremia, but at the end, I'm going to touch on some of the other components of his holistic care. Okay. So at that visit, I decided to check some labs. So whenever I check labs, I try really hard to either choose them based on a guideline that has been established, whether it's USPSTF or another, you know, health guidance body that you're following or the medical conditions in front of you, right? Because I think that a lot of us, especially new grads are looking for the, the guidance of when to order labs and when not to. And I think that the go-to for most clinicians, whether they're brand new or experienced is to kind of just order labs just because to do some screening. But anyway, I mean, that's, I wouldn't worry about it too much. If you're a brand new grad, I think it's more important to choose the safest option than to kind of split hairs if you're not quite sure. Right. So anyway, I checked some labs for him. I checked his CBC and a CMP and the intention for those labs for this particular patient, I really want to check on his renal function because he hasn't been seen in a year and he takes um, diuretics for hypertension. For the CBC, I'm concerned about his alcohol use disorder. So I want to see if there's any of those anemia changes because of the fact that he is drinking consistently every single day alcohol and not really taking in that much water. And I'm not quite sure of his nutritional status. I also checked a TSH, a lipid profile, and a hemoglobin A1C. The hemoglobin A1c and the lipids were a little bit borderline in terms of like the guidelines. Like there should be screening lipids for patients according to USPSTF over the age of 45 for cis patients. And then hemoglobin A1c and TSH, I think I was just feeling uncomfortable at the time. And so I ordered those labs. I don't really have a great reason to order the TSH at that uh, juncture. And the hemoglobin A1c, his BMI was in the 24, it was 24, which was in the expected range. But just as a general screening lab, because I wasn't unclear about his nutritional status, that was the decision-making that I had behind that. But anyway, I want to talk about the lab results. Clearly, there's more to this patient than just labs, but we're talking about labs in this episode. So let's jump to that. So I did his, uh, so his CBC was luckily normal and his lipid panel was also normal. His hemoglobin A1c was also within the normal range, so that was great. So that leaves the CMP. So the notable ones, so complete metabolic panel, both has the basic metabolic panel as well as function tests. And so the main ones to write home about were his TSH, which was 5.77. Actually, sorry, that's not part of the CMP, but that was like that extra lab that I ordered. And it actually was slightly elevated. And the units that I'm using are U.S. standard units. If you're outside of the U.S., there are international units and you can use conversions to translate those. But the TSH was 5.77. So that was slightly high. When it comes to the complete metabolic panel, the main labs that were abnormal were a sodium of 134, which is low. And the reference range for the lab that I was using was 137 to 145 was the normal reference range. And that, again, is in U.S. units. And one thing I want to say about labs is that there is kind of a, a gold standard, typical expected reference range, but then you actually also have to look at the lab that is in front of you because they're tools that they're using to actually compute the lab's is dependent on that like machine and and the reagents that they're using. So anyway, use the reference range of your lab. But the reference range for this lab was showing that it was 134, which is low. The other abnormal labs are potassium of 3.3, which is slightly low for that lab reference range, which is about 3.5 to 5.3. The other thing is the chloride was low at 92 and the reference range there is 98 to 110. So all of these were on the slightly lower side. The liver function tests, the LFT panel, those were all completely normal. The only other thing that I want to add in the conversation about sodium is that the glucose was normal, uh, 94, so within that normal reference range. The BUN and the creatinine and the GFR were also in the normal reference range, as is the carbon dioxide, but that's a conversation for another day. You can definitely join us in the lab crash course if you want to talk about carbon dioxide. I'm like obsessed. Anyway. So let's talk. So those are the lab results. So I want to jump, just like pause on those lab results. We'll come back to that. But I want to talk like at the core about hyponatremia and the take home that I want you to think about when it comes to hyponatremia is that what's actually happening. It's not about the salt. It's actually about the water. When you see low sodium, think about the water that we're actually holding onto more water than we are getting rid of. I think that's like one of the really hard things. I think a lot of us think, oh, low sodium will just add some salt back into their diet and it will be fine. And it's, it's, it's a lot more complex than that, So, which I'll talk about, the physiology. It's a little bit mind-bending, but hopefully I can really simplify it for you. So three things. So that's number one, hyponatremia. It's, we're holding on to more water than we're getting rid of. And so why does that happen? So there's three, kind of three things to think about next. Number one, it's related to the inherent function of the kidneys as well as the status of the kidneys. Like, do they have kidney injury or is it normally functioning? And then it just ties back into how the kidneys actually work, which I'll tell you all about, I promise. So just hold that thought. So number one is is about how the kidneys work and if they are functioning optimally or not. The second thing is about intake of salt and water. And then the third thing is about ADH. And whether it's working or it's not working, so that's a lot of information to take in. But that's just to prime you, so that I'm gonna I'm gonna talk. I'll talk you through all the steps. Don't worry. Okay, so just keeping those in the back of your mind: kidneys, intake of salt and water, and ADH. I'll come back to that. But when it comes to the workup of hyponatremia, the first thing to think about again, keeping in mind all the things that I've told you to keep in mind so far, but like. I guess I want to pause there and say with lab interpretation, I try to make an algorithm as best as I can in terms of what are the knee-jerk next step responses to those labs. So when I see low sodium, number one, more water than we can get rid of. And then the second thought is: is this truly low? Because there are a number of labs where there can be a false low or high. And that is certainly the case with low sodium. So is it truly low? So thinking about water, and then thinking about is it truly low. So what do I mean by that? So glucose can artificially lower the sodium level. So there's something called a sodium correction score. You can just straight up Google that. I use the one from MDCalc. I'm not an affiliate of them. I just enjoy their tools. But glucose can artificially lower sodium. And this makes sense if you think about the pathophys of osmolality, which is a little, again, getting a little bit into the mind-bending thing, but basically sodium is a marker of how concentrated the blood is. So when you have high glucose, the blood is getting a lot more concentrated, and so reflexively the sodium can go down to make sure that it is not too concentrated. So when you use that calculation score and you take into account the glucose being high, it will calculate what the kind of true sodium level is and see if there's actually a sodium problem or if the sodium is just doing a really great job trying to keep your your serum from getting too concentrated, right? So that's, that's the first kind of tricky thing is like sodium, okay, we're talking about water and what is the glucose? Like kind of like step one, automatic, first, next step. The other thing to keep in mind in terms of a false reading, high lipids and high protein can alter the like machine's ability to read the sample correctly. So the actual like machine that processes all of the blood samples. So that's, those are the three kind of like false reasons that you can have low sodium glucose, which you can do a correction score for lipids and protein. There's no correction score. You just take that into account when you see it being high. Um, And apparently also in jaundiced patients, it can cause some false hyponatremia, but I don't really have any other information aside from that. And I've actually never come across that before. Typically, if you have a jaundiced patient, you have a lot on your plate to be managing. And so hyponatremia is like part of that picture, but it's not like the predominant thing that you're worried about in jaundiced patients anyway. So that's like a longer story to get into, but keep it at that. Okay. So. When you're looking at, again, just, I'm doing a lot of recapping because this is like a lot to keep in your mind, especially if you're an, a, more of a visual person. Um, I'm more of a visual person. So anyway, low sodium, holding on to a lot of water. Is it truly low? Thinking about glucose, lipids, and protein and jaundice patients. The next thing is how low are we talking? So Again, when it comes to lab interpretation, my personal practice is that I have those knee-jerk next steps that I kind of like mentally tie them together. So glucose and sodium go together in my mind. And then the next thing is about when to worry, like when to freak out, when to send them to the ER, when to send them to a specialist, when to worry. That's how I do the lab course, but also in this podcast episode is kind of covering that reference range. So how low is it? Okay, so the normal reference range, and again, apologies if you're outside of the United States. I'm way more savvy with the U.S. standard units compared to the international units, but you can just literally do a conversion where you plug those numbers in, and the same thing applies. So the normal reference range, again, depends on your lab that you're looking at, but it's about 135 to 145. So the red flag, when to freak out, and like don't actually freak out, but... (laughs) You know the place to like really worry with low sodium is 130. Less than 130, and or if they have symptoms, those patients need to go to the ER. In the real world, there are some some exceptions. However, I never manage a patient less than 130 without collaborating with my supervisor or um, colleagues. There are some cases, very rare cases, but especially if you were a new grad, do not manage those patients by yourself. So if it's less than 130 and or they have symptoms, those patients typically need to go to the ER. So what are the symptoms that we want to watch out for? So mild symptoms can be things like headache, fatigue, lethargy, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, gait disturbances, uh, confusion, and muscle cramps. So that sounds like a lot of things to memorize, but the really kind of like narrowed down simple thing is that the main side effect of low sodium is brain swelling. So it goes back to what I said about the concentration and osmolality. If the serum becomes too dilute, you know, with the you know, isotonic and hypertonic and hypotonic, if you go back to that kind of like refresher patho stuff, then you can remember that when it becomes imbalanced, you can either get shrinking or swelling. And so when it comes to hyponatremia, low sodium means high water, and then that can cause brain swelling. So that really ties very nicely into the symptoms that you're looking out for. What what neurological symptoms are we looking out for there? Severe symptoms with hyponatremia are seizures, coma, and respiratory arrest. That's very rarely happened in primary care. And if you have somebody having a seizure in front of you, they need to go to the ER. We likely already know that, right? Most of the time, patients will have symptoms if the hyponatremia is prolonged, so it's been more than 48 hours, and if it's less than 129, most likely they're going to have symptoms at that point. And then when in terms of the pragmatism here, in primary care, if they don't, you're, you're kind of first assessing, do they have those symptoms, number one? And then number two, you can utilize all of those symptoms to explain to patients what they're looking out for. In terms of those alarm signs and symptoms as you're working the patient up if they're above 130 so i have some more things to say about that but let's just recap so again hyponatremia is it truly low how low are we talking here again 130 is that definite red flag to kind of memorize and then you definitely want to address anything that's out of the reference range and then the next i want to come back to what i said at the very beginning what are the next steps from there the next steps are thinking about those three things. Kidneys, intake of salt and water, and then ADH, whether it's working or not. So I'm going to circle back with that. I want to talk about, I'm going to draw on the patient now. So for this patient, his, if we go back to the lab results that I shared, his sodium was 134, which was lower than that reference range. His glucose was normal. His kidney function was also normal. Um, He had no symptoms. Basically what happens with lab interpretation, a lot of new grads tend to freak out as I did, and that's totally normal. Um, I think that we need to differentiate. Did the person have symptoms at the time of the visit or did they have no symptoms and you just found it incidentally? And so that right there can help you calm down a little bit. But yeah, basically when I got those labs back, I called the patient, either myself or the nursing staff that I worked with, Called the patient to ask specifically, do they have any symptoms? Does he have any symptoms of the neurological variety that I shared? And he did not. So the next steps are, aside from calling him, asking about symptoms, are to think about those three things the kidneys, um, the salt water intake, and ADH. And I advised number one, the symptoms to watch out for. The next thing was about so- low sodium precautions. So because we understand that it's because the water intake is high and maybe the salt intake is low, but again, I'll talk about that more in a second. The general advice to start as we're getting to work looking at the potential causes is to say just limiting the water intake, like limiting that for his case, limiting the alcohol intake is actually more optimal than the water intake, if that makes sense. Again, I'll talk about this more in a second. And the next very quick first step when you see that for a patient is doing a medication check. So the top medications that can cause low sodium are thiazides, SSRIs, anti-seizure medications, sulfonureas, opioids, and ecstasy. But hopefully, in your history, you've asked about you know recreational drug use at that time, MDMA. But anyway, so those are the first steps. Contact him, ask about his symptoms, advise on. Potentially, if he can, he's not interested really in cutting back on his alcohol intake, which he's already shared with us, but you can have that conversation of like, you know what, there's actually something not quite normal with your labs and it would be optimal if you could, you know, cut back in these next days and have a conversation about that. But anyway, let's talk about those three kind of like underlying causes aside from medications, right? That's a quick, quick first thing to think about. And then the next are the kidneys intake of salt and water and ADH. So let's talk about kidneys. I love this stuff. (laughs) Hopefully you love this too. I think understanding it really helps you to not just straight up memorize, but when you get it, it's just, it sinks in a little bit more. So when it comes to the kidneys, how they actually work at optimal status is that there's a set rate of concentration. So the urine that comes out of the kidneys has a minimum dilution and a maximum dilution, meaning that if you take in a ton of water even though your body has too much water inside, your body cannot like urinate straight water. It just doesn't work like that. The kidneys do not work that way. So they always have some sort of solute in the urine. So as you can see, if you have an excessive amount of liquid in your body, like that water fluid and not enough solute to, to get, uh, get rid of it, it's just, just going to take the solute that we actually need to compensate for that right? So the sodium is going down because we can't, we're getting rid of some of it and we're holding on to too much water. And it's actually, it's a weight-based calculation of each individual's minimum and maximum dilution. So for example, if you have an, in this hyponatremia example with like too much water in your body, it's never going to be straight water in the urine. And similarly, you can never urinate straight solute. And so even if someone is dehydrated, it's going to the kidneys are going to pull water even though if it's not the best thing for the body if that makes sense the other thing to keep in mind is that hyponatremia can happen if somebody if somebody's kidneys are not functioning optimally so in the case of esrd and stage renal disease if they're not voiding then we're holding onto extra fluid and then the other side are we taking in too much fluid like water intoxication so which really kind of ties into the point number two, talking about dietary intake of water slash salt. So again, people think that automatically, oh, hyponatremia, let's just add salt back, but it's a little bit more complex than that. So the three kind of main reasons why we'd have too much water in the diet, and I think this is so fascinating, beer potomania. I don't know if that's like the the, the term that we're still using. Um, that's what I learned about in nursing school a while back. But basically when somebody has alcohol use disorder or they are having excessive amounts of alcohol during the day and they're not eating enough solute or eating enough meals and their primary diet is from the alcohol itself, what actually happens is it's alcohol is really carbohydrates and water. And so when you break down carbohydrates, it gets broken down into water. So you're basically just you have a straight up water diet with very limited solute. So especially in this patient's case, he potentially is drinking so much alcohol and not enough um, in his diet to balance it out that it's actually a lot more water in his diet because of the carbohydrates being processed into water. I find that super fascinating. I love that kind of stuff. But anyway, there's two other potential causes of dietary intake of water salt. Is this like tea and toast diet that you've probably heard of where um it's sort of like a just a state of malnutrition where somebody is only having again carbohydrates and fluid and when there's just carbohydrates in in a person's diet and there's not enough protein or fat or other solutes it just gets broken down into water so you have way too much water and then even if your kidneys are working appropriately like i said there's a maximum dilution To the point where they're like your body is just not going to void straight water and so it's going to start pulling the solutes that your body actually needs to be able to continue to void the third piece about the dietary is the primary polydipsia um, where either someone has a compulsion to drink extra water or they are drinking excessive water in like a hazing ritual or something like that right if there's like a take home about salts, like don't just add salt tabs. (laughs) You basically never add salt tabs. When somebody has hyponatremia, you have to get to the root cause. And if you understand it, it's a lot easier, right? Okay. So the last piece in terms of the, the etiologies of hyponatremia, I've talked about baseline kidney function and how it it cannot get rid of extra water because of the limitations of the inherent function of the kidney plus if you add any renal dysfunction on top of that it's going to do an even poorer job of getting rid of extra water the second thing is about dietary intake of water salt but it's really about the water and carbohydrates more than it is about salt and then the third piece to keep in mind when it comes to low sodium is is adh anti-diuretic hormone and this is a little bit of a throwback to like the, the core courses that we've taken uh, for nurse practitioner programs and nursing programs. But ADH is anti-diuretic hormone, and that's confusing. Um, I love listening to the Curbsiders podcast, and there's a physician on there, Joel Topp, uh, who's a nephrologist, and I'm really obsessed. Um, he's just so, he's so brilliant. And he had talks about ADH as as hydration hormone. It's not actually the real name, but if it keeps it straight in your mind, hopefully that will be helpful, right? So that comes from our brain telling our body to hold onto water in states of volume depletion. So there, this is this is where it gets a little bit confusing. If it's, if you're not already confused, hopefully this is clear enough. But in low perfusion states, like heart failure, cirrhosis, their kidneys are not getting perfused. So what happens is that your body thinks that it actually needs more volume which equals more water and it tells your body to make more adh to add more hydration so that the kidneys are being perfused however it's be, so if we're talking about the balance of you know the body is saying oh my gosh there's weight there's way too much water and not enough sodium the kidneys are saying no we aren't getting enough hydration so that they're holding on to extra water and so, when it comes to that ADH, ADH always wins. It wins over sodium. So this is a maladaptive response. Your body's tr- the body is trying to help, but it's a maladaptive thing because it's actually worsening the hyponatremia. yeah, so it, it, it's it's technically doing its job, but it's maladaptive, if that makes sense. The other piece of ADH is that there are certain cases of abnormal ADH function. These are zebra diagnoses, right? This is adrenal insufficiency, hypothyroidism, and S-I-E-D-H. And this is not for you to like memorize. This is just to have like a baseline kind of understanding. And probably you're going to have to listen to this a couple of different times because it's really mind bending. It's a lot to keep track of. So I'm going to tie this all together. So let's just recap again, a couple of different recaps here. So steps to low sodium management. Right, So we, we talked about how low sodium is actually a lot of water. There's kind of three buckets of main causes in addition to medications, but the way that the kidney functions, the dietary intake of water and salt, and then the third thing is about ADH. And then when it comes to how you manage it, you want to see how low it actually is in terms of those when to worry thresholds and the symptoms to watch out for. So kind of step one is, is that safety piece of like, okay, how low are we talking? Do they have symptoms? Are they okay to, for us to work them up or do they need to be seen in the ER? The next step is you get to work identifying what's causing it in the first place. And then the treatment is holding water and adding salt. So I'll talk about that in a second. I already said a couple of times that you don't want to add salt. So just stick with me for a second. I want to talk about the algorithm. So if you're a visual person, I actually have this as a case study on the YouTube channel. So if you want to look at the algorithm, also, again, it's inside the lab crash course, all of these algorithms and printouts that you can keep at your desk. But if you want to just look at it visually, definitely go to the YouTube channel for the hyponatremia case study. So I'm going to go through the algorithm of workup. If you have a patient who is less than um, who has a sodium of less than 130 and they're symptomatic, those patients go to the ER. If you have a patient, if they are not symptomatic, If it's between 130 and 135 with no symptoms, step number one is look at glucose, lipids, protein, and their kidney function, right? Because those are the false low reasons. So high glucose, high lipids, high protein can cause falsely low sodium. But then you also want to look at the renal function. Again, those are the kind of first two knee-jerk reactions of what is the glucose, what is the creatinine and BON and GFR so that you can take the next steps and verify if it's actually true hyponatremia. So if you don't have any of those things to start, the first next step is looking at the medication list. Like I said, the thiazides, SSRIs, anti-seizure medications, et cetera. And then you also want to order a serum osmolality. So serum osmolality, again, is talking about the actual concentration of the blood basically this is like another second check to see if it's actually true hyponatremia or if it's just fake, right? <laughs> if, it's just, if it's just because of something else in the blood that's throwing off that lab. So if you have a normal serum osmolality, it's not true hyponatremia. So in that case, if you haven't already checked the lipids in the protein, check those, right? However, if the serum osmolality is low, So it's dilute. The serum is dilute because there's too much water. It's actually considered to be true hyponatremia. The next step is to order a urine osmolality. So urine osmolality is looking at the concentration of the urine. And this is, I think this gets really confusing, but if you think about it, if you have a lot of water in your body, your kidneys are going to try their hardest to maximally dilute the urine. So, the osmolality, the concentration is going to be low because there's going to be a ton of water in the urine. So, that is telling us that it is not related to ADH, right? I want to step back for a second, just a refresher about the ADH thing. So, ADH is going to be triggered in that maladaptive state like cirrhosis or volume depletion, heart failure, things like that, because the kidneys aren't getting enough perfusion. And so if your, you know, if your serum is low, if your concentration of your serum is low, your urine should also be low because your body should be trying to get rid of the extra water. But if it's not, then it's telling you that the ADH is doing something funky, whether or not it's like trying really hard to, you know, restore perfusion to the kidneys, or if it's something like SIADH, the syndrome of inappropriate ADH, right? So that's, that's your branch point of like, if you get a urine osmolality, urine concentration, if the urine concentration osmolality is low, it's not related to ADH. And that's like your branch point. If the concentration of the urine is high when it really should be low, right? Because your urine, your kidneys should be getting rid of extra water. Then there's something going on with the ADH. And I want to pause here and say that this is super confusing. (laughs) So if you're confused, that's totally normal. And most of the time in primary care, you will stop here and you won't even actually need to order urine osmolality because you will get your answer in the first steps. So yeah. So step two is if this this rarely happens, especially as a new grad. Okay, so step number two, I mean, it's not really step two, but part two, you likely won't get to this place. However, if you do, I highly recommend you get either your supervisor or a colleague involved because these are number one, potentially zebra diagnoses, or they are more medically complex patients that are more likely at high risk of something going wrong quicker, right? so. If you get to that place of determining that there is potentially a problem with ADH, meaning that the urine osmolality is actually high, the concentration, the urine is very concentrated when it really shouldn't be, there's likely an ADH problem. And so the next kind of segmented options are, is this a maladaptive ADH problem with volume depletion? Again, meaning somebody who has volume depletion because of CHF or cirrhosis or lack of perfusion. Uh, to the kidneys for any reason, the body is going to try to hold on to extra water with ADH despite there being too much water already, right? Versus are we in a situation of like SIADH where it's inappropriate antidiuretic hormone? So the first thing, the first kind of branch point that helps you figure that out is doing the physical exam. So you want to see if they have symptoms of either number one, volume depletion or overload. Right, and and trying to see like is there a risk there with heart failure, right? And so just being really cautious that you're not confusing heart failure with volume depletion. Like again, this is why we're tapping in somebody else to make sure we're on the right track, right? But just looking at that physical exam, do, is there any reason that they're volume depleted versus is there a perfusion related problem? Do they have you know jugular vein distension? Do they have low extremity edema? Do they have crackles in their lungs? Like looking at that piece the next step you theoretically would do again i do recommend having somebody involved tagged in if you're going to be taking these next steps but the next steps that you can look at are ordering uh, a uric acid level as well as the urine sodium level however this is getting a little bit into the weed so i'm really not going to talk that much about urine sodium uh urine if you ordered a serum uric acid Basically, that is a potential branch point for it to help you further distinguish if this is an SADH potential related problem versus a volume depletion or a lack of perfusion related problem. So, if you ordered a uric acid level, if it was normal or if it was on the higher side, that is more likely to be on that CHF, you know, or volume depletion side, lack of perfusion side, versus if the uric acid level is low then it's more likely to be SIEDH type of picture, right? But anyway, going back to physical exam for a second, the most accurate thing when it comes to assessing volume status from a physical exam perspective, the main most reliable pieces are looking at orthostatic vital signs, pedal edema, jugular vein distension, Dry mucous membranes are not always reliable as a measure. Apparently dry axilla <laughs> is supposed to be one of the most reliable physical exams to assess volume status, but like I don't think anyone I know has ever assessed that. I have not certainly. So, anyway, FYI. But anyway, like the the point here is I want to share great information here so you feel like you've seen the end of the road basically of like where primary care ends and where a specialist potentially begins. However, like this kind of like second part two, part of the algorithmic workup really doesn't, number one, doesn't happen that often. And number two really needs to have somebody else involved. I know I've said that like three times, but (laughs) please do. I think the reason I say that is based on my own experience and the NPs that I work with, I constantly felt the need to prove myself. Uh, to myself that I could do it, number one, and also to my colleagues, my patients, my supervisor. I just was so, I was just so consumed with imposter syndrome that I would do a lot of things that were from a proving place, coming from a place of proving myself. And so I just, I would just want to acknowledge you and recognize that you might be in that place too. And also safety is always number one, right? And there is a lot of, you know, uh, being being very humble in the first year of nurse practitioner practice, so no one really, no one would expect you as a new grad or even as an experienced provider to be doing the second kind of half of that hyponatremia workup. Just FYI. So anyway, let's let's circle back to the case. So Jim, in terms of the management, let, number one, you want to look at the other labs, right? Because we really only talked about sodium today, but he's a whole person with a lot of things that we need to address. So just to go back to his labs real quick, the main abnormal labs that were there, there was a TSH that was slightly high, sodium was low, potassium was slightly low, and then the chloride was also low. Pearl of practice there, the chloride for the most part, unless we're talking about acid and base di- balance disturbances, you really don't care as much about the chloride if the sodium is low. If the sodium is low, then it's really just correlating with the sodium. But anyway. So you want to look at the other labs and address those, the low potassium, the slightly high TSH. Um, there's, I have an episode with a TSH interpretation with hypothyroidism with high TSH. If you haven't listened to that one already, definitely go back and do that. Um, I wanted to reconcile his medications to kind of just make sure we were all on the same page. I um, wanted to talk about the different lifestyle factors that might be contributing to his hyponatremia. So in terms of the med reconciliation, he was only taking chlorothaladone, so that is potentially a risk factor for him with the low sodium in addition to the alcohol intake. So having a discussion again, he said at the beginning of the visit, he's not interested in cutting back on the alcohol use, but we're still going to have a conversation about it. And I'm going to say, hey, Jim, I, I know, I know you said that you weren't interested in changing either the alcohol or the tobacco, but... Just so you know, here is this, you know, this medical problem that's happening and it is likely related to that. Um, however, because of the chlorthalidone I actually chose to stop that as his only hypertensive agent and change to lisinopril 10 milligrams. He had normal renal function. He's never taken it before. Chloroth- just a pearl of practice here. Chlorothalidone is one of the thiazide diuretics. And hydrochlorothiazide is the one we all like learn about and talk about as much. It sounds like chlorothalidone is having more of a moment now than it was a couple of years ago, but it actually has better evidence for morbidity and mortality protection than hydrochlorothiazide. It's very potent though. So that's probably the rationale for choosing that first, the hydrochlorothiazide, according to the JNC8 guidelines. So we, I stopped that. I changed to lisinopril, which is another one of the first-line ag- anti-hypertensive agents. And then what I chose to do is also recheck his labs in a few days. Um, also, a fun fact, clinical pearl about chlorothalidone is that it can lower the potassium level over time. You, the body should be able to compensate for that. And you can tell that in the first three weeks of taking it. But if their potassium is persistently low, then you either need to add that supplement on or take them off the medication. So, anyway, not to get too off track there, but his potassium was low. So, hopefully, the stopping the chlorothalidone will help with that. Adding lisinopril will potentially also help with that. And then, hopefully, that all of those, just that one action alone, potentially with him changing. His intake of alcohol will help with the hyponatremia globally and so i just decided to recheck his labs in a few days there were no alarm signs and symptoms it was not at that danger zone of less than 130 he was feeling totally fine i did ask him to take it easy with the alcohol with going away on the weekend with his buddies because that is potentially very dangerous and who knows whether or not he listened to me so that's pretty much it uh, for for his management um, in terms of the labs in terms of that that management piece when I rechecked his labs, the potassium had normalized and sodium had normalized, which was beautiful, lovely little mini intervention of changing one medicine and then it seemed to work. Um, I also, in terms of holistic care, just to recap on the other parts of his care, is I ordered a total T3 and a free T4 to evaluate that high TSH level. Again, there's an, a, another episode that talks about high TSH if you want to check that out. Um, I added folic acid and thiamine for his consistent alcohol use. And who knows if he decided to continue to take it, Um, I had him do a nurse visit in about one to two weeks to do a blood pressure check because I changed one of his blood pressure medications and it was also slightly high that day. And then I did another follow up with me, the provider, in about three months. And so the choice there in terms of hypertension management in our clinic, the workflow, is that the nurses can do a a sole visit by themselves to check the blood pressure, do medication counseling, and um, if any adjustments need to be made, then they tag in one of the providers, either myself or another colleague on site. Um, So yeah, so I scheduled the the follow-up for about three months, but I could have done sooner if the blood pressure was um, still high at the next visit. But yeah, the the blood pressure, and and just to address also in the first visit, I think one, again, like little pearl of practice for new nurse practitioners or newer clinicians is that his blood pressure was high in the visit. And I think it's very uncomfortable for us as providers, especially when we're new, to see something that needs quote-unquote fixing in front of us or addressing in front of us. And we want to do all the things right away. However, the real world is that we have to balance Patient rapport, patient preference, right? And this this was my choice, is that the person in front of me already has told me that I take my hypertensive medications, but I, I don't really do what I'm supposed to. And so for me to jump right in and address his blood pressure, you know, I address like a whole bunch of things at like one visit, I ended up eventually changing the cholorthaladoone, but at that visit, I just left it as is because I wanted to number one, get more information, but also develop this rapport with him over time, I addressed it in my notes saying blood pressure is high today. Patient states that he is not interested in changing his medications, you know, because I had a conversation with him about that. And so at the very least I've addressed it, even if I haven't made that specific change on that visit. And that's a clinical judgment piece and a philosophy of practice piece. But that's just like one of the recap points I wanted to make about this particular case study and that holistic perspective outside of solely just um, hyponatremia. That's our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review and tell all your NP friends. So together we can help as many nurse practitioners as possible, give the best care to their patients. If you haven't gotten your copy of the ultimate resource guide for the new NP, head over to realworldnp.com slash guide. You'll get these episodes sent straight to your inbox every week with notes from me, patient stories, and extra bonuses I really just don't share anywhere else. Thank you so much again for listening. Take care and talk soon.